Next Chapter Podcasts. Wait a minute, what the heck? There's no new episode of Indecent with Kiki Anderson this week? Should I just end it all right now? I can't go a full week without the pervy delight that is indecent. I know, that's probably what you're all thinking right now, but calm down. With that Dan Savage interview being such a doozy, we felt like we had to take a break, okay? We had to process all the raw brilliance he was spitting. So, while we take a week to get our shit together, we thought you should have a little something that ties you over. And as it happens, our sister pod, Beef with Bridget Todd, just launched its second season and ooh, it's such a banger. For those of you who didn't listen last year, it's an incredible show about historical rivalries and it's won three Gold Signal Awards. And here for your enjoyment now is the newest episode featuring wrestling promoter Vince McMahon, who is most definitely indecent. Like so many remarkable moments in the history of live television, the events of a singularly significant broadcast on Monday, March 26, 2001, were the result of the bastard child of the American entertainment industry, the guiltiest of all guilty pleasures. It came from the world of professional wrestling. Vince McMahon, the unscrupulous owner of the World Wrestling Federation, appeared in the opening moments of WCW Monday Nitro, the flagship show of World Championship Wrestling. Imagine that. Me, Vince McMahon. Here I am on WCW television. How can that happen? For the last three years, McMahon and his WWF had been locked in a proverbial life-or-death battle, which would decide not only the fate of his company, but the control of the wrestling business itself. You see, it was just a matter of time before I, Vince McMahon, bought my competition. In the opening moments of his Mortal Enemies TV show, he announced that he had purchased World Championship Wrestling and declared victory over the metaphorical carcass of a once mighty foe. That's right, I own WCW. Countless times in business, when two companies are engaged in a battle, the victor will purchase its vanquished enemy, usually at an insulting price to the fallen. But said victory is usually declared in boardrooms full of lawyers and paperwork. McMahon did it on live television, dressed in car salesman aesthetic with glittering white teeth, perfectly groomed hair, and eyes bulging to match the heaving pecs and lats barely concealed by his tailored suit. The very fate of WCW is in my hands. Standing by what appears to be a pile of garbage in front of a chintzy chain link backdrop on a rival show of a rival company on a rival TV network all while grinning maniacally and hamming it up as if he had just killed Superman. To put this in perspective, this would be like if Vladimir Putin appeared on CNN to announce that he had dismantled the American government and was now the president of the United States for life. So how did this happen? For three years, Vince McMahon and the WWF did battle every week against WCW, owned by the Southern billionaire, inventor of cable news, and undisputed king of Atlanta, Ted Turner. Somehow, with the firing squad aimed directly at him and his company, Vince McMahon not only survived, he managed to publicly humiliate his enemy. In a business whose very model is staged combat, some of the most vicious fighting ever to occur in the history of television happened. And in this real-life fight for the control over a fake sport, some of the most incredible television ever produced was the result. I'm Bridget Todd, and welcome back to Beef. This is The Monday Night Wars. In order to properly understand what took place between the WCW and WWF, we have to go back to a time when there weren't just two behemoth companies grappling for control of the wrestling business. Instead, there were dozens. Fans of the Godfather films might remember that scene in the first movie when Marlon Brando met with the heads of the five families to negotiate a truce to an ongoing mob war. And in the 1950s through the 80s, a similar, almost mafioso organization existed in the world of professional wrestling. 
It was called the National Wrestling Alliance, or NWA for short. Fans, this is going to be one of the hottest summers ever in professional wrestling. And as the summer of 88 rapidly approaches, it's going to be hot here in the Cincinnati. During this period, the wrestling business was broken into dozens of smaller regional territories called promotions. They were almost like warring feudal kingdoms with a sort of lawlessness to them. And they abided by informal codes. If a promotion based out of one region tried to organize a show in another promotion's territory, there could be mayhem. And by that I mean actual, unplanned violence. For professional wrestling, it was a bit like the Wild West. In 1948, an effort was made among the warring regional wrestling promotions to create some formal ground rules. That way, each regional promotion could do business without the threat of a different regional promotion attempting to incur into its borders of operation. As a result, the National Wrestling Alliance was formed. The fundamental principle of the NWA was this. In order to ensure security for every wrestling promotion, they would have to create an interdependency among the promotions to survive. The method by which the NWA achieved this was ingenious. Despite there being many different independent promotions in the NWA, there would be only one NWA world champion. This champion would be chosen by the heads of the different promotions in the NWA, and that champion would defend the title across the different promotions. The most famous of these NWA champions was tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, lovable loudmouth Ric Flair. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying. Son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Ric Flair would travel the country defending the championship, and throngs of people from every town would go and watch their local wrestling hero attempt to dethrone the dastardly and cowardly Flair. The local boy would always get close to winning before Flair would inevitably cheat to retain the title and head on to the next territory. It proved to be a massively successful formula. And because professional wrestling wasn't nationally televised, the shtick never got old or predictable. Flair could travel to every territory where they had only heard of his dastardly deeds and rinse and repeat the same formula. The less imaginative or more incredulous among you might be rolling your eyes a little at the elevation of wrestling beyond anything other than a cheap form of dumb entertainment. But there is no denying the impact it has had on the entire world and the loyalty felt to it by fans like Kazim Femoyide. He's the co-host of the Masked Man podcast for The Ringer Network and a former managing editor for The Bleacher Report and a former creative writer and producer for World Wrestling Entertainment. One, there's no reruns. Two, it is a form of entertainment that's been around for literal centuries, right? And it is a morality play based on sport that you can appreciate if you have any sort of appreciation for athleticism and, you know, combat sports. And as a storyteller, the really good ones, you have an appreciation for it as people who can perform live on, uh, in front of a crowd on live television every single week. It is a telltale way to really prove if you got what it takes to be a famous person, an action star, a movie star, you know what I mean? Like, there's no, it's no surprise that The Rock has been wildly successful in his career. There's no surprise that John Cena has been wildly successful. Dave Bautista, wildly successful. I love it, man. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. It's, it's my favorite form of entertainment. I'm a lifer. I don't think I'll ever stop watching it. And, um... Man, it's better It's better than your favorite thing, which is always tell people. Pro wrestling is better than whatever your favorite thing is. <laughs> if one promotion tried to invade another promotion's territory, the NWA champion would not come to that offending promotion's territory, nor would an NWA champion ever be selected from that territory, thus costing it revenue and prestige. It could even be kicked out of the NWA altogether, losing the protection of the NWA and exposing itself to being taken over by another promotion. This system of wrestling was thriving under the Confederation of Territories, but little did they know that two pivotal events were going to occur that would change their entire world, like the comet that killed the dinosaurs. The first was the advent of cable television, and the second was the arrival of Vince Kennedy McMahon Jr., 
Born on August 24, 1945, in Pinehurst, North Carolina, Vince K. McMahon Jr. is the son of Vincent J. McMahon Sr., or Vincent for clarity. Vincent McMahon ran a promotion called the WWWF. Yes, that's right, there are three W's. The WWWF controlled the Northeast Territories in the United States and was part of the NWA. It was much like the other promotions and how it operated, with one notable exception. It controlled one of the most lucrative wrestling territories in the country. In spite of Vincent's abandoning his wife and infant son until Vince Jr. was 12, the son started working for his father in 1969. He served as a ring announcer and assisted with other duties, having earned a business degree from East Carolina University the year before. Fun fact, that's also where I went to college. Senior members of the NWA almost certainly knew of and had interactions with the younger McMahon and could be excused for not seeing what would eventually become apparent. Inside of this young, straight-laced East Coaster, who looked more like the heir to a chain of furniture stores in Florida than a media mogul, was the living reincarnation of Genghis Khan. In 1982, Vince Jr. purchased the WWWF from his father. His first move was dropping the most unnecessary third W in the history of the English language. The second move he made was to break off from the NWA. Because when you're going to declare war, you generally don't sign peace treaties with those that you intend to conquer. But this story is about the war between the WWF and the WCW. So I'll just give you the cliff notes of what happened next to help us get where we need to be. Up until the early 1980s, professional wrestling had been a mostly live event experience with very little focus on the television production side. Vince saw it much differently. Bringing his promotion into other territories was kind of impossible because venue owners felt loyal to the local promotions and wouldn't rent out their event spaces to an out-of-town company. Not to mention the very real threat of real-world ass-whoopings that I mentioned earlier. So Vince decided to turn the WWF into more of a television show and sell that show to the local cable networks across the country. These networks had no relationship with other local wrestling promotions, and they didn't understand the long-held terms of peace that kept the territorial wrestling system together. McMahon's WWF invaded the television airwaves of one territory after another. And to make it worse, the WWF offered a more family-friendly, mainstream product than the bloody, violent affairs offered by the territory promotions. McMahon had a genius for creating larger-than-life characters and showcasing them on a bright, colorful, well-produced stage. His characters, such as the Macho Man Randy Savage, Ooh, yeah. Andre the Giant, the only professional wrestler who's still undefeated, and Rowdy Roddy Piper, I just thought I'd come around, say hi, and see if you had anything on your mind for a change. <laughs> were huge personalities who could talk as well as they could wrestle. But the most important character he created, who would become his primary weapon for destroying the old territory system, was the real American, Hulk Hogan. I'm fighting for life, brother. I'm fighting for all those people that have remolded their lives, man. Mongol after Hulkamania. Get their priorities in order, man. Walk around with a lot of pride. Audiences, and especially kids, couldn't get enough of the vitamin-eaten, prayer-sand Hulkster. One by one, the territories fell to the conquering hordes of the WWF and its chief, Vince McMahon. His destruction of the territorial system was seemingly complete. But in the Deep South, in a remote kingdom known as the state of Georgia, one lone territorial promotion still stood, led by a man who refused to bend the knee to the Northern Conquerors. It was known as Jim Crockett Productions. Georgia audiences still clamored for that old-fashioned Southern-style wrestling instead of the polished, sanitized performances McMahon had dubbed sports entertainment. Despite their heroic efforts to stand tall in the face of overwhelming odds, like the Jews holding out on the desert rock of Masada, it was only a matter of time before the Romans would enter. Then, entering the scene on his white steed, clad in bright, iridescent armor, rode Georgia billionaire Ted Turner to the rescue of this smaller kingdom that dwell within his southern empire. The way that Vince McMahon was a visionary in the world of professional wrestling, Ted Turner was a pioneer and trailblazer in the world of television. He created CNN and the form of 24-hour cable news which we all know has had an immeasurable positive impact on American society, as well as cable superstations TBS and TNT. He even came up with the idea for the show Captain Planet. Like McMahon, Turner was a scrappy brawler. 
Despite having been expelled from Brown University, Turner took control of his father's billboard business, Turner Advertising Company, at 24, following his father's suicide. Ted turned it into a worldwide success. But unlike the hyper-controlling McMahon, Turner seemed to thrive in chaos. For one thing, he was known to talk nonstop, earning the nickname The Mouth from the South. How do you support yourself, Ted? <laughs> Same way the federal government does. I just keep operating at deficits and, uh, you know, and doing well. I, <laughs> Due to his prodigious smack-talking talents, his ability to cut a promo, which is wrestling code for talking shit, basically, also garnered him the nickname Captain Outrageous. He once quipped of his own speaking style, I don't type my speeches, then sit up there and read them off a teleprompter. You know, I wing it. He had conquered and reshaped the world of television and even married Hollywood's leading beauty, Jane Fonda. But unlike the buttoned-up Yankee blue blood that McMahon played on television, Turner was a good old boy. And good old boys love three things in this world above all else. God, their mamas, and sweaty bodybuilders in skimpy outfits hugging and smashing steel chairs into each other. Turner did have dealings with McMahon in the past, and even at one point aired the WWF on his TBS Superstation. But the relationship turned sour due to a mutual dislike between the two personalities, potentially thanks in part to Turner's support for progressive causes and McMahon's conservative ties. All I'll say about Ted, he's a son of a bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> Other than that, he's probably not a bad guy, but you know, don't like him at all. The WWF soon left the TBS airwaves, but that didn't mean that Turner was done with wrestling. He wanted his own piece of the grappling pie and acquiring the ownership of Jim Crockett Productions, which had a solid fan base in the state of Georgia, seemed an obvious starting point. In 1988, Crockett sold his company to Turner, who redubbed it World Championship Wrestling, or WCW for short. For, as we know in the annals of wrestling lore, a wrestling company must have a three-letter acronym. Braves have become a winning team in baseball. CNN is the leader in world's news and information. And now WCW is about to dominate the globe in professional wrestling. Despite its new billionaire owner and TV time on Turner Airwaves, WCW struggled to be taken seriously as a national wrestling product for the first five years. The focus of Southern wrestling-style wrestling is bloody carnage rather than character-based storytelling. And that diminished its appeal with audiences across the country. But Turner desperately wanted to beat his counterpart, whom he held a personal contempt for, possibly due to McMahon's ostentatious attempts at building a fake connection to old money Connecticut in his backstory. After all, Turner was a true Southern gentleman. Another difference between the two was that while McMahon was involved in nearly every aspect of the WWF, Turner was largely removed from the day-to-day -day decision making of the WCW. McMahon was also wielding the muscle-bound, insanely charismatic national phenomenon, Hulk Hogan, like a flaming broadsword across the media fray. And the WCW had nothing that could match him. That was, until a figure emerged who, until this point, had been lurking in the shadows of WCW. He was small, with jet black hair, a crooked smile that emanated menace, and eyebrows that hooked upwards at the corners to give almost an aura of cartoonish villainy. Come on, Vince. Come on down. It'll be fun. His name was Eric Bischoff, and until 1993, he had been nothing more than a ring announcer for the failing WCW. But Bischoff had greater designs for power and a plan to acquire it. He whispered into the ear of his lord, Turner, singing sweet songs of victory over the northern WWF kingdom, and his dark designs seemed sound to the cable monarch, who granted Bischoff complete control over the WCW. So what did Eric Bischoff realize? What was his epiphany that spelled doom for Vince McMahon? Almost as if a prophet receiving divine wisdom from the wrestling gods, his conclusion was thus. Vince McMahon was a millionaire, and Ted Turner was a billionaire. Armed with that holy knowledge, they could pay the stars of WWF more money, much more money, than Vince could afford to pay. The timing to execute Operation Steal Vince's Stars couldn't have been better. In 1993, McMahon was looking to the future, and many of his stars who had dominated the 1980s were starting to take backseat roles in the company. Vince was looking to push young, upcoming talent to the forefront to carry his company into the new decade. 
But these wrestling warriors who had won the territory's wars were displeased. They believed they still had the star power to carry the company, and they were right. Vince's plan to push younger talent to carry the company forward only worked in a world without a major wrestling competitor. Armed with a billionaire's checkbook, Bischoff began stealing WWF's biggest stars of the 1980s. He managed to win over Rowdy Roddy Piper and Macho Man Randy Savage with lavish contracts that Vince wouldn't and couldn't match. And in 1994, he even managed to lure away Vince's most trusted and prized warrior of all, Hulk Hogan. The price was an extravagant contract that included one particularly enticing element in it for Hogan, complete creative control over his character. For a control freak like McMahon, giving any wrestler that kind of control was unthinkable. Yet while it helped Bischoff acquire Hogan, it would later have unintended consequences. The acquisition of the biggest names in professional wrestling did not produce an immediate ratings victory for the WCW. Sure, the older WWF stars Bischoff recruited to switch sides had dominated the wrestling world of the 80s. But by the 90s, they were no longer in leading roles. So the WCW gave audiences the perception that they were filling their roster with wrestlers who were past their prime. Hiring these major names certainly gave the WCW a credibility with mainstream audiences that it didn't have before, but it didn't give them an edge. Bischoff didn't intend to just steal away Vince's biggest names from the 1980s, though. That was just the beginning of the plan meant to legitimize the WCW. He intended to go after WWF's younger stars as well. But first, Bischoff and Turner would declare open war by airing a new WCW television show every week on Turner's cable network, TNT, called Monday Nitro. It happened to air the exact same time that the WWF broadcast its flagship show, Monday Night Raw, on the USA Network. Thus, on September 4th, 1995, the Monday Night Wars began. My first reaction was watching that first episode of Nitro in the Mall of America. And it was just a lot of people. And even though Monday Night Raw was still like a New York show and they were still, I think, in the Manhattan Center at that time, you could still kind of tell, it still kind of gave a, a stage show sort of taped feel where Nitro kind of felt like alive, right? It felt like they were right in the middle of, you know, real life going on. So, it did feel a lot more controlled on WWF television, whereas WCW kind of felt like, wow, anything could happen here. They just got Lex Luger, who I was just rooting for to beat Yokozuna not even a few minutes ago. Now he's over here with Hulk Hogan and Sting, and I just saw Hulk Hogan before, and it just kind of felt like this evolution. It did give the feel that wrestling was bigger than just this one show I was watching. I was like, oh man, there's this whole world of professional wrestling out there that I'm not even privy to so nitro in many ways was sort of my intro to that to being like oh wow like it's not just vince mcmahon and who's the wwf champion it is this entire you know sort of thing that's also happening on other channels so yeah it's wild that the, the monday night war sort of opened my eyes to that for most of 1995 the two shows traded ratings victories with neither side fully dominating the other but in 1996, this was all about to change. Two of McMahon's youngest and brightest stars were Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, known in the WWF as Big Daddy Cool Diesel and Razor Ramon. Who are you getting ready? I am. Let me tell you something. I'm going to beat you into a pulp. And when it's all said and done, what? Ramon, I'm walking away with the belt. Yeah, I got news for you, Big Man. The bad guy, he undefeated in the garden. At this point, the two were coming to the end of their contractual period with the company. Bischoff offered both men massively lucrative contracts, with the same creative control clause over their characters. However, this time, he would not simply debut them as new hires on WCW Monday Nitro. Instead, Bischoff had a plan so genius, or whatever constitutes genius in the world of professional wrestling, that even Vince McMahon would have to tip his hat to it. On May 27, 1996, Scott Hall a.k.a. Razor Ramon, showed up in the audience during a live airing of WCW Monday Nitro. You people, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. At this point in the 1990s, the internet was not in most American households. 
and it was not common knowledge that Scott Hall had signed with WCW. Instead, he walked into the ring area and suggested that he had come from the WWF to take down the WCW without explicitly stating it. The idea was that even though in reality he was working for the WCW, in the storyline, he was still working for the WWF. Two weeks later, Kevin Nash, a.k.a. Big Daddy Cool Diesel, also appeared from the crowd on Monday Nitro and declared he was joining Hall to bring down WCW. Because I got a scoop for you. With Bischoff interviewing them, the whole segment was presented as entirely unplanned and unscripted. Hall and Nash declared themselves as the outsiders, and the completely oblivious fandom rapidly tuned into Monday Nitro to see what would happen next. WCW Monday Nitro would go on to beat WWF Monday Night Raw in the ratings for 83 consecutive weeks. It was as if the ghosts of territory promotions arose from their graves underneath the dusty venue floors of the South and Midwest to enact vengeance on the man who had ended their way of life. This storyline, known as an angle in wrestling parlance, was something that had never been done before. Eric Bischoff exploited the real-life fan knowledge of the battle between the two giant wrestling companies and turned it into an on-screen storyline, blurring reality and fiction. To put this in perspective, it would be like if Chandler and Ross from Friends showed up on Home Improvement as their Friends' characters and declared war on Tim Allen and the ABC Network before hitting a leg drop on Jonathan Taylor Thomas. It worked especially well because in the WWF, Vince McMahon was still trotting out a formula in front of audiences that had worked in the 80s, but now seemed unrealistic. Most wrestlers' characters revolved around having some sort of job that wasn't that of a pro wrestler. There were wrestling policemen, wrestling firemen, wrestling clowns, and even wrestling foreign dictators. The idea that these working professionals would go out at night after a long day's work and fight each other strained credulity in a form of entertainment that already strains credulity to its otherworldly barriers. The WCW was tapping into a sort of Gen X cynicism, while the WWF was still playing the hits from an uber-patriotic Reagan era. To make matters even worse, McMahon displayed his contempt for his audience's intelligence by reintroducing the Razor Ramon and Diesel characters, played by entirely different wrestlers. You got that right, Chico. We live like kings, not like you southern, snake little hillbillies. In Vince's mind, these were characters he created, and these roles could be played by anyone of his choosing. But in the mind of the wrestling fan, these characters and the wrestlers who portrayed them were one and the same. The idea that this was a scripted television show, while widely known, was not supposed to be so clearly displayed. This foible has since become known as Fake Diesel and Razor, and was widely mocked by fans and industry insiders. Then, WCW detonated its biggest bomb on the wrestling world. Hall and Nash had been declaring all throughout the summer of 96 that there was a secret third member of their villainous plot to take down the WCW. And on July 7th, the unthinkable happened. The invasion comes to a head. This is where the big boys play, huh? Battle lines have been drawn for the war that will be heard around the world. The WCW Bash at the Beach was a pay-per-view event that was kind of akin to a wrestling Super Bowl. And it would be the site of Hulk Hogan, professional wrestling's preeminent icon, American hero, and the most important tool of the pediatric vitamins industry, becoming a bad guy, otherwise known as turning heel. Hulk Hogan is here! Hulk Hogan's here! During the evening's main event, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash fought in what was supposed to be a three-versus-three match against WCW heroes Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. Hall and Nash began the match without their mystery third member of the team, and they used every dirty trick in the heel playbook. Finally, at a pivotal moment, Hulk Hogan ran out from backstage, ostensibly to perform what's known as a baby face save. This is where one good guy comes to the aid of others and wins the day. Only instead of helping the WCW heroes, Hogan attacked Macho Man. In retrospect, this should have been more predictable, considering one man preached the values of diet and prayers for children, and the other man dealt Slim Jims to an already obesity-prone public. Nonetheless, fans in attendance were outraged. 
They threw garbage into the ring, and one fan even jumped the guardrail and attempted to actually attack Hogan before security got him. Hogan got his hands on a microphone, berated the audience, and declared his heel faction with Hall and Nash as the new world order of wrestling, or NWO. Adding one final insult, he changed his name from Hulk Hogan to Hollywood Hogan, which might as well have been as bad as pledging his loyalty to the Ayatollah or Saddam Hussein. Even to this day, I don't think it's been topped, right? And clearly, I'm not the biggest Hulk Hogan fan as I was when I was younger. But at that time, man, like, there was real visceral reactions and hatred towards that. You know, there's, I don't think there's really anything that comes close to it because it wasn't something that was just WCW years in the making. It was his entire career in the making. And the story of the Outsiders, Hall and Nash, being these guys coming in to take over the company, it only made sense for Hulk Hogan to be that guy. And anytime anything went down between NWO and WCW, whether it was a world title match, was it tag team matches, whether it was brawls backstage, whether it was beating people up in the parking lot, throwing Rey Mysterio like a lawn dart into, uh, you know, trailers. Like, they just, it was like a seven-month-long squash match, that first run of NWO, where they were just, you couldn't even get a scratch on them. And Hulk Hogan goes from being the most beloved not even one of the most beloved dudes in wrestling, one of the most beloved celebrities in pop culture, to legitimately being one of the most hated. It was the decision for wrestling, right? Like it was it was like when LeBron told Cleveland I'm taking my towns to South Beach and went to Miami. Like, you know, this is a guy that was so beloved and was gonna wait until the moment that everybody was watching to stab everybody that believed in them in the back. For LeBron, that was the city of Cleveland. For Hulk Hogan, that was wrestling fans everywhere. The Hulk Hogan to Hollywood Hogan heel transformation stunned the wrestling world. And once again, Hogan found himself behind the hottest angle in wrestling since he had last thought to be the ultimate virtue signal for the cliched American dream. Only this time, the NWO was cool and popular with teens. On the other side of the wrestling DMZ, Vince McMahon truly found himself with his back against the wall, fighting for the life of his company. And Eric Bischoff, having no interest in mercy, made his next play. You see, unlike WCW Monday Nitro, which aired live every week, WWF Monday Night Raw was taped in advance. Bischoff planned to exploit this in a move which many in the wrestling industry have deemed way over the line, but Bischoff defends to this day. The knife was stuck in as follows. It was very easy for a member of WCW staff to attend a Monday Night Raw taping as an audience member and simply write down match endings. Announcers on Monday Nitro would then give away the endings to every Monday Night Raw episode at the beginning of the broadcast, spoiling their rival show. Vince found himself besieged on all sides with WCW dominating the WWF in the ratings for most of 1996 and 97. But the thing about Vince McMahon is that despite his carefully manicured appearance, nothing excited him more than a good fight. He was acutely aware of his missteps and began taking measures to correct them. Looking out across the bombed-out landscape, he could tell the WCW certainly was edgier than his sterilized version of professional combat. He decided the only way to truly compete was to take the WWF further than the WCW dared to go and how it challenged the audience's sensibilities. The WCW, and especially its faction, the New World Order, were cool and featured reality-based storytelling, but they weren't R-rated. McMahon was going to take his TV show into a realm of smut that would make good old boy Ted Turner squirm in his seat. The WWF would become lewd, raunchy, gory, and completely inappropriately over the top. And it would kick off what is thought to be the artistic and commercial pinnacle of professional wrestling history, known as the Attitude Era. 
It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. On December 15, 1997, Vince declared on Monday Night Raw that the WWF would begin transitioning to a more adult-based show, no longer aimed at child audiences. McMahon began creating increasingly controversial characters. He created a faction meant to rival the NWO called D-Generation X, or DX for short. Because again, wrestling fans abhor reading words out in their entirety. DX would be responsible for millions of teenage boys across the United States getting suspended from school for karate chopping either side of their crotches while telling their classmates and teachers to suck it. Oh, let's get ready to suck it! <laughs> McMahon also launched the career of the current biggest movie star on the planet, Dwayne Johnson, known in the WWF Attitude Era as The Rock. Like D-Generation X, The Rock's influence would extend to millions of teenage boys. So this manifested in the slightly more perplexing form of asking one's friends and relations if they could and declaring that whatever someone's name might be Last, but most importantly, emerging from the dusty saloons of Texas, came a man called the Texas Rattlesnake, Stone Cold Steve Austin. This bald, beer-guzzling brawler would also inspire millions of teenage boys to flip the bird at every authority figure in their lives. And who could forget them punctuating every declaration that their hormone-addled minds could conceive of with an emphatic cry of, And that's the bottom line, cause Stone Cold said so. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it was truly a renaissance period in American television entertainment. McMahon was on a creative role. He still had wrestlers whose characters revolved around their jobs, but this time the job might be porn star or a pimp accompanied to the ring by a dozen beautiful women he called the hoe train. By early 1998, professional wrestling had reached the center of the American zeitgeist. Raw and Nitro were each averaging four to six million viewers each week. These ratings are unthinkable in today's broadcast TV landscape. Gigantic franchises, American Idol and Survivor, barely topped six million viewers in 2023. The Game of Thrones prequel series, House of the Dragon, never even hit three million. Major publications and news outlets were running features trying to figure out why programs about bulky men and sexy women punching each other and talking trash could be so popular with audiences in the 90s. And on April 13, 1998, after an 83-week WCW ratings win streak, Monday Night Raw finally scored a victory. Well, folks, business is going to pick up here. And I don't know, this may be a big mistake. Austin does not need to make any more enemies. By that point, Vince had completed his evolution as a showman and become an in-ring character. And that Monday night, the evil owner of the WWF, known as Mr. McMahon, was set to wrestle as arch-enemy, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The allure of watching a blue-collar Texas tough guy beat the living snot out of his boss proved irresistible to wrestling audiences. And with that, the WCW rating streak was over. The WWF had crawled its way back to defending itself against the WCW, and the two companies traded ratings victories back and forth for the rest of 1998. In an attempt to counter the popularity of Stone Cold Steve Austin, Eric Bischoff found his own hairless, muscle-bound destroyer, an unstoppable, ass-kicking force named Goldberg. Ever since I made my debut here at WCW, I've destroyed every single person in my path. The creation of Goldberg was an undeniable success for WCW, but cracks at the company were beginning to show. Remember that creative control clause that Eric Bischoff offered to WWF stars so they would sign with WCW? Well, that turned out to be a poison pill. Most of the biggest stars at WCW who had this clause in their contract refused to lose matches. In order to get around this, matches would often end in a double disqualification majorly disappointing viewers and attendees at the show. Also, the young and up-and-coming wrestlers at WCW felt that because the older, more famous wrestlers had that kind of creative control, they would never lose to a younger wrestler. This meant younger fighters were missing out on what the industry calls being put over, where a seasoned vet loses to an up-and-comer to help the newbie become more popular. As a result, 
younger wrestlers at WCW began defecting to the WWF, reversing the course of events that began over two years ago. Despite Bischoff's best attempts, he seemed unable to stave off the WWF's forward momentum, even as tried-and-true tactics began to backfire. On January 4, 1999, Eric Bischoff had his television announcers do what they always did at the start of Monday Nitro. They gave away the results of the pre-taped matches of Monday Night Raw. Only this time, instead of spoiling WWF's main event for the evening, they unintentionally promoted it. That evening's Monday Night Raw showcased in its main event the braggadocious heel champion The Rock defending his title against the ultimate babyface Mankind, aka Mick Foley. And Mankind now hammering away on the corporate champion The Rock. Mankind, I'll tell you, King, there couldn't be two more opposite men in this matchup. I mean, The Rock. Foley's character was a schizophrenic, possible serial killer who wore a leather mask and stuffed a dirty sock puppet in his enemy's mouths. After telling viewers that Mankind was going to beat The Rock, WCW announcer Tony Scavone dismissively quipped, that'll put butts in seats. And that it did. When it came time for the main event of Monday Night Raw, hundreds of thousands of viewers switched from WCW to WWF programming, all thanks to the free promotion WCW had given the WWF on its own network. Somebody's gonna win this match, yeah. somebody's gonna lose it. Not like the other league is The Rock now, hammers away on Mankind, now goes for the steel stairs. Wait a minute, the oh, oh, that first one was... Then things went from bad to worse. Even acknowledging your competition is going to at least have a little bit of of intrigue to, to, to watching it and see what happens. So I think in the long haul, in the short term, it was kind of messed up. You know what I mean? Uh, it felt dirty. It felt like they were not playing a fair game. You know what I mean? They had this billionaire's money and they have all the top stars that they bought from WWF and all this other stuff. But I think in the long haul, it made WWF step their game up and be like, listen, if you want to compete with us, you got to go live or else we're going to keep, you know, announcing your 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 matches and your your results every single time out. And I wasn't really big on the Internet wrestling community back then. I wasn't sure I wasn't finding spoilers on forums or anything like that. It, it, it felt dirty. But, you know, Eric Bischoff was was playing the win, man. And I, I, I respect it now. You know, like I, I think we're sort of in a, uh, uh, a I don't want to say a renaissance, but like the second the second act of those Monday Night Wars uh, with AEW and WWE's sort of uh, uh, having the uh, going in against each other right now. And um I think competition just helps everybody, right? Like, I think even though, you know, you're all in the same business, you're still all after the same fan and the same dollar. And I guess as a fan, I love it because, you know, competition breeds greatness. But I can imagine how somebody working at WWE or a wrestler or anything like that could feel a type of way about it and want to take Bischoff's head off. You know, he's not even a it would be one thing if it was another wrestler doing this. Right. This is a guy who basically lucked in. I don't want to say lucked in, but he, he got the gig of a lifetime where a billionaire is like, here, executive produced this show, this channel. And, um, you know, the the. the the, the check's blank. Go for it. You know, so who wouldn't have done that if they're trying to beat their competition, knowing that they're starting with a 50 year head start in, into what they were doing? You know, so I can't get too tight at Bischoff. But at the end of the day, I think it all made for great wrestling and great TV. And what moments will we have gotten if Bischoff never did that and never forced Raw to go live or forced Nitro to try and do stuff to keep you on their channel every week, knowing that they were going head to head to Monday Night Raw. I think that's what made the, the whole war as entertaining as it was. WCW hired one of the main writers from WWF, Vince Russo, to run the creative department along with Eric Bischoff. Together, they decided WCW would out-attitude the WWF's Attitude Era but their ideas went too far, even for wrestling audiences, which says a lot. There was the Viagra on a stripper pole match. They tried an old woman on a forklift match. And maybe, worst of all, WCW had the actor David Arquette win the World Heavyweight Championship. It was an attempt to promote Ready to Rumble, a wrestling movie the WCW was producing with Arquette 
considered by some to be one of the worst movies ever made. So while the WWF was rolling creatively and financially, the WCW began to lose money hand over fist. The WCW ended up losing over $60 million in the year 2000. To make matters worse, Time Warner Cable, which owned WCW, was merging with AOL. In order to do away with any non-profitable ventures on their books, Time Warner decided to sell the drowning WCW. Despite Ted Turner's love of pro wrestling, he still loved money more. After all, he was Time Warner's single largest shareholder and couldn't risk sabotaging the merger to save a pet project. The only question that remained was who would they sell WCW to? And so we end where we began. All that was left was for Vince McMahon to purchase the only company on earth who had truly competed with and nearly destroyed his own. Then he could announce the purchase on that competitor's own show shortly before dissolving it altogether, thereby destroying and humiliating his enemies simultaneously. Some men conquer minds, others conquer nations. Vince McMahon did both. The Monday Night Wars represented more than two wealthy men having a real fight over the future of a fake fighting show. It represented a creative highmark, a sort of renaissance for one of the strangest and most unique forms of entertainment on earth, pro wrestling. And more than that, as both companies fought each other, they received ratings for each show that the WWF, now branded World Wrestling Entertainment, struggles to achieve to this day. Perhaps for Vince McMahon, the ultimate capitalist, the lack of a serious competitor generated a creative stagnancy. Vince McMahon was a warrior whose weapon was dulled without a foe. McMahon always showed no regard for the rules, both unwritten and written, in the world of professional wrestling, and he ruled over his company with undisputed and total power. But if you're wondering if absolute power corrupts absolutely, that depends on whether or not you think Vince was ever pure to begin with. In 2022, at the age of 76, it came to light that he had multiple non-disclosure agreements in which he paid multiple female employees in his company to stay quiet over illicit affairs he had with them. As a result of the scandal, he was forced to step down as CEO of the company he spent decades fighting for. Though, in classic McMahon style, he managed to claw his way back onto the company's board the following year. However, just weeks before completing this episode, new and even more serious allegations were levied at McMahon, one of them being that he was engaged in sex trafficking of some of his female employees. As of the original air date of this episode, McMahon has once again stepped down from his company and is being investigated by law enforcement for various crimes. Perhaps it should come as no surprise that a man who seemed completely invulnerable to any consequences for any of his actions would act in such a way where he felt he was untouchable. But it's one thing to rule the world of wrestling and do as you please, and another to commit crimes that violate the actual laws of our land. And as a final indignity, it appears that the WWE is trying to erase any connection with the man who made it a multi-billion dollar entertainment juggernaut. As for Turner, he lost an estimated $7 billion when the AOL merger tanked Time Warner's stock value. The battle between Vince McMahon, Ted Turner, the WWF, and the WCW, for better or for worse, brought wrestling into the mainstream in a way that before that was unthinkable. Perhaps professional wrestling will never achieve the mainstream notoriety it once held. But in a world of cruel masters and helpless victims, there will always be the chance for one lone figure to hold two middle fingers up in the air and cry out from the darkness, Give me a hell yeah. We talk about the anti-heroes and, and, and what made it so good. There's nothing more anti-establishment and counterculture than wanting to beat up your boss. And Vince McMahon fit that role to a T for, for many reasons. One, anybody that knows Vince knows he's always down to do business. And if business was, if everybody who pays a, a ticket to watch this show needs somebody to boo after this unfortunate thing that's happened they could all boo me and he took that on and on top of that there was the hint of realism he really was the boss he really was firing people he really was a guy that would you know take personal vendettas out on people and 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 
a, a bunch of other things that probably wouldn't fly in 2023, 2024. But a lot of that stuff was real. And lo and behold, you know, you get out of that primordial ooze of these evil overlord of a company, you get Stone Cold Steve Austin. You get the guy who sort of rises up out of that and becomes the person who fights the good fight, who goes up against all odds every single time out. And I think I think Vince was playing the role of Ted Turner. Like he was playing the role of the evil billionaire boss. And I think in Vince's mind, he's Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's the guy breaking all the rules, doing everything he can, flipping people off, drinking beers, doing whatever he can to go against the established status quo. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. This episode was written by senior producer James Levine, with support from our other senior producer, Ben Austin Docampo. Our senior editor, sound designer, and showrunner is Pete Musto. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef, and remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.